Well, Christmas is really unlike any other holiday in that Christmas, there's something about Christmas that tries to bring the best out of people. Um, we see this a little bit at Thanksgiving, right? There tends to be community action where people will donate food and they'll come together and they'll box food and, and give it to people who maybe aren't able to afford a big full meal. So we see this a little bit at Thanksgiving, but for the most part, when you uh, look at holidays in general, Christmas sort of stands above the rest as there's something about Christmas that that this is the time of year when people are supposed to be kind and generous and they're supposed to treat others better than themselves. This often goes by the title, the Christmas spirit, right? Tis the season, people say. Christmas is essentially is a time for love and generosity and sacrifice. And if you would open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to see that this really is fitting. This, this really is a fitting thing. Because of how the Apostle Paul applies the consequences of the Incarnation. So what we're going to look at is, it is true that the Incarnation, the birth of Christ, should make us better people. And that's what we're going to see today, but I, I want us to, to sort of promote it this way. When it comes to Christians and Christmas, there's a wide spectrum of how Christians approach and practice Christmas, right? We've got Christians who are all about it, and they, they, go, they decorate their houses, and they've got trees and lights and candy canes and, and Santa, and they're all about it. And then there's Christians who are fervently against it, seeing it as pagan and having a very unchristian, unbiblical tradition surrounding it. And then there's people kind of in the middle where maybe they are uncomfortable with some things, but they're not totally against it. But one of the things that I often hear among Christians, no matter where they fall on this spectrum, is that there's things about Christmas that we don't like because they actually serve to distract us from what we call the true meaning of Christmas. And what are those things? Well, oftentimes it's brought out as the consumerism, right? The people, Christians tend to be very uncomfortable with this consumerism of Christmas time, where we're just all about buying, 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 shopping, 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 and how's that, how's that about Jesus? But probably more often than even the consumerism is all the folklore, right? Wreaths and Christmas trees and candy canes and Santa Claus and snowmen and reindeers with a light-up nose and these tales of, right? We say, how is this Christian? And, and, if, and, and recognizing that most of it isn't Christian at all, isn't this distracting us from the true meaning of Christmas, if you will? But I'm going to make an argument here that I think there's something about Christmas that's far more dangerous than any of the folklore. It's more dangerous than Santa. It's more dangerous than Christmas trees. It's more dangerous than consumerism. And that is kindness. The kindness, the goodness that, that Christmas brings out in people, Christmas cheer, if you will, is the most dangerous part of our Christmas season. It's far more distracting to Christmas, or can be far more distracting than anything else. Now let me explain why I think that from Philippians chapter 2. We're going to see something that I think has an important relevance to Christmas. But as I said two weeks ago as we started the month of December in Advent, we've been focusing on Christology, learning more about that baby that was born in Bethlehem. And we're going to see all of those things we focused on, the hypostatic union, God made flesh, 
the, the, the two natures coming out. We're going to see all that in Philippians chapter 2. So this is a very Christological text, but I, I want us to focus, have, have a kind of a unique Christmas application with it, if you will. And so we're going to begin in verse 3, and just uh, one last um, thing to put up front. This is historically throughout the history of the church been known as the Carmen Christi, which means a hymn to Christ. And the reason it's been called that is because verses 6 through 11, uh, many scholars believe that this was a hymn, a song that the early church wrote, and Paul took their song and took the lyrics from it and used it to bolster his point. So they call it a hymn to Christ because we think that this was likely a song written that Paul utilizes in, in Scripture. That being said, if you would please follow along beginning in verse 3 of Philippians chapter 2 with me, for these are the very words of God. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have this text beginning in verse 3 with Paul calling the Philippian believers to, if we could put it very broadly, to live good lives. To live specifically lives of, of sacrificial love, of kindness, of charity, of generosity. Right? He, he commands them in verse 3 to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So Paul is calling us to live humble lifestyles. But notice he doesn't necessarily juxtapose humility to pride, although I think you could still make that case. But he compares humility to selfishness. Paul, for Paul, what it looks like to live a humble lifestyle, and this makes sense, is it's to, in your own mind, lower your thinking of yourself. Considers others, consider others, as he says in verse 3, as more significant than yourselves. And all of your actions then are not coming from selfish ambitions, but it's for the benefit of others. So Paul tells us that if we need to live humble lifestyles, we need to be humble people, and humility looks like looking around the church, looking around your neighborhood, looking at the people around you and saying, they matter more than me. That's humility. And then he goes on to say that this mindset ought to affect our actions as well. If, as we consider people as more significant than ourselves, it should then cause us to, as verse 4 says, to look out for their interests. Look, each of you, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is basically Paul's summary of Jesus' command in the Gospels to treat others as you would have treated unto yourself. Right? He doesn't say to completely abandon your own interests. That's not humility. That's called recklessness. That's called irresponsibility. You're supposed to take care of yourself and look out for yourself. That's not always selfish. You do that. But humble lifestyle says that I'm going to care about myself and my well-being, but I'm also going to care about everyone else's well-being equal to mine. 
Look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Verses 3 and 4 is Paul's call to us to live humble, sacrificial, selfless lifestyle. You could call this in our day and age the Christmas spirit. Right? Every child's Christmas movie, the, the moral of that movie is this. It's trying to get children to not be conceited and be all about myself, but to be good to my parents, to be good to my neighbors, to give presents to the needy, to give presents to the poor. That's the Christmas spirit. As a matter of fact, Chuck was telling me about St. Nick's Day, December 6th. St. Nick is the patron saint that eventually kind of mythologized into the Santa Claus story. And he kind of got there because of his generosity. Because he would give gold to the poor when they needed it. That's the Christmas spirit, giving to the poor. Treating others as more important than ourselves. Sacrificing our time and our money for others. That's the Christmas spirit. But here's what I want us to understand though. Paul grounds that, he links it to its necessary foundation. In other words, verses 3 through 4 are not arbitrary for Paul. Paul is not simply saying this, listen, you need to treat others as better than yourself. You need to think highly of others. You need to care about their interests. And why? Just because. I just feel like that, isn't that just, don't we just agree? We agree, that's the right thing to do. I don't, I don't need to justify that claim. I don't need to ground it. I, it just, just, just do it. No, that's not what Paul says. Paul says in verses 3 and 4, to be humble, to consider others as more important than yourselves, to look out for other interests just as much as you look out for your own. And then he grounds that in verse 5. Verse 5 is our linking verse here. Verse 5 is the connection of the thought to the reason for the thought. Verse 5 is the bridge here that we cross over. And, and I have to say, I, I, I read from the ESV. I, I really prefer the ESV Bible, but... Uh, I, the ESV, just in my study, did not render verse 5 very well here. This is not a good rendering. Um, and the reason I feel confident saying that, even though I don't know Greek, is because the ESV is the only Bible of all of the major English translations that reads this way. So I don't know what they were doing, but I agree with all the other Bible verses. And let me explain what I mean. In verse 5, the ESV says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the ESV, what it sounds like the ESV is communicating is that you should have the, uh, what we call a humble disposition, right? To have this mind among yourselves. What Paul's saying is this humility that I just laid out in verses three through four, that should be your constant state of being, right? So we don't want to just be humble at Christmas time, right? We want to be good, humble, selfless people all the time. That, that, to, that ought to be who we are. That state of mind defines us. And the ESV seems to be communicating here that this humble mind is something you have because you've been united to Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, I think that's a true doctrine. I think I could prove to you from other places in Scripture that outside of Christ, you can never be a genuinely humble person. I think the Bible teaches outside of Christ, everything you do is ultimately selfish and, selfish and sinful. So I don't think that an untrue doctrine is being promoted here, but I think the other verses which are in, in harmony are probably getting to the point. And how other verses read, so the, the, the King James, the New King James, the NASB, the NIV, those other, what they will say is they will say something like this in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
So what verse 5 is telling us is, is this is what's happening in verse 5. Paul is saying you need to be a humble person. You need to be a selfless person. You need to help others. You need to consider others. And you need to think highly of others. And the reason you should have this mind is because Jesus had this mind. This was also Jesus' state of mind. This was also Jesus' disposition. Therefore, it should be yours. So this is the culmination of Paul's argument here. Paul is saying you ought to be humble and you ought to treat people well. And if you were to say, why, Paul? Why should I? He would say, because God. Paul is giving us in verse 5 Jesus as the standard of moral living and the model of moral living. Jesus is the standard of moral living and the model of moral living. What is morality? What does it mean to be good? Paul's answer to that is, who is God? God is the objective standard of that which is good. Well, how do I live, like, how do I live out my morality? How do I live out my morality? What's Paul's answer? God. Jesus is goodness incarnate, and Jesus lived in such a way to model goodness for us. So Paul says this, be humble because Jesus is humble. And then Paul takes it a step further and says, you know what, I'm going to prove, I'm going to remind us of his humility. They probably already knew this and believed this. But Paul says, I'm going to take one of their own songs and use their own words against them and remind them of just how humble Jesus Christ truly is. And so what we're going to see then in verses uh, 6 through 8 is a three-phase humility of Christ. Jesus Christ showed us a humility that goes three layers thick. Three layers of humility. Jesus' humility just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. So our first phase of humility, if you will, is the incarnation. The incarnation. The incarnation by itself, even if we forget about Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, even if we just look at the incarnation isolated, is an incredible act of humility and selfless radical love. And here's how Paul says it in verse 6. Again, speaking of Jesus Christ, he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and then the first half of verse 8, and being found in human form. So that's the incarnation. That Christ Jesus, who, as verse 6 says, was in the form of God. This Greek word for form is what we would say in our English vernacular today, something like nature. Uh, the, the word is for the outward expression of an inward reality. That's what the Greek word morphe means. So it's saying that Jesus was, to his core, he was God. He was a divine being. And so it says, even though Jesus was, was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what's that saying there? It's, it's not saying that Jesus became un-God and is no longer equal to the Father in his nature. We can read it that way because we have this, this, this really unfortunate tendency when we see things like words like greater or equal and not understanding that there's a, a wide variety of how those are used. Jesus himself says the Father is greater than I. But uh, the word greater doesn't mean one specific thing. It depends on the context. Like, for example, what would, you say is what would you say is a greater vehicle? A Corvette or a pickup truck? What's the greater vehicle? Our, 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 our mechanic thinks he has an objective answer to this. 
Well, it depends. It, it depends. If, if, if I'm racing, if I'm racing somebody, the Corvette is far greater. If I'm trying to move my neighbor into his new house, I don't want the Corvette. It's, a, it's an inferior vehicle. So you see, what do we mean by equal? What do we mean by greater? We have to understand these things in terms of its context. And, and so here's what Paul is, is getting us at here to understand the incarnation. It's saying, because Jesus in eternity past was fully 100% God, he obviously then reaped the benefit of all of the privileges that come with being God. Jesus was the omniscient, all-knowing, glorious, majestic God, the immortal God who could not die, who spent his days being worshipped by the angels, living in light, in glory, in immortality. And Jesus held on to these things. He had a grasp on these things. He held on to these divine privileges, the glory, the majesty, the worship, the power. And in the incarnation, Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to let go of those things. I no longer consider those things that I will grasp. I will relinquish my grip of those divine privileges. And suddenly, the God who was served by the angels, as the text says, is now serving his creatures. Suddenly, the God who dwelled, as we saw in our pastoral uh, Timothy, Paul, when he writes Timothy, remember he uses that phrase, who dwells in an unapproachable light? Jesus existing in an unapproachable glory is now being born from a woman covered in post-birth debris, crying for his mom. Jesus surrendered. He let go of these divine privileges. As a matter of fact, Augustine, Augustine, I think is actually how he pronounced it, has this incredible little poem in a sermon he wrote once where he said this, man's maker was made man that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger. That the fountain might thirst. That the light sleep, that the way might be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that the teacher would be beaten with whips, that the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life itself might die. In the incarnation, Jesus reveals his humility because he was willing to surrender all of the divine privileges that were rightfully his. And the text doesn't say in verse 7 he was forced to do this. It says that he emptied himself. Jesus willingly, this, this is a, a metaphorical phrase. Paul always uses this word em, empty in a metaphor. If, if you were to use it literally, it's the same thing as to hollow out or to pour out or to make something void. And it's saying that Jesus, just, Jesus hollowed himself out. He, he made, that's why I love what the King James does here. The King James interprets, uh, renders this, that he made himself of no reputation, that the God of the universe might become that random boy born to Mary in Bethlehem. He made himself of no reputation, of no repute. He humbled, he lowered himself, the creator becoming a creature. I'm not sure that we can really even fathom the humility of that. 
As a matter of fact, when Layla and I were on our trip over Thanksgiving to Michigan, we heard a great sermon. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 is this amazing verse where Paul says that he who is rich might become poor so that we might become rich. And he talked about how contextually we know this has nothing to do with money. But this is the idea that Jesus was rich, spiritually rich in glory, honor, majesty, all these things, and then he became poor. He lost it all so that we might become rich. That's verses three and four apply to Jesus' life. The incarnation is an act of great humility that he would take the form of a servant, be born in the likeness of men. The creator becoming creature. And I want us briefly to, before we move on to our next point, to see that the last two weeks as we've been studying our Christology, what we've been trying to do is refute some of these ancient heresies that got Jesus wrong. And one of them is refuted in this text. And there's an old ancient church heresy, one of the earliest Christological heresies, called adoptionism. Adoptionists were people who believed that Jesus was God. Oh, yeah, no problem affirming that. Yeah, Jesus is definitely God. But they believe at one point during his ministry, he became God. Adoptionists say that Jesus did not exist with the Father in eternity, but that he came into being altogether in Bethlehem, was born in no way divine, and then at his baptism, God gave him the Spirit and turned him into God. But what does Paul tell us in Philippians Verse 5, 6, and onward. Jesus, before Bethlehem, was in the form of God. And then he came and took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. Jesus pre-existed his birth in Bethlehem. And he not only pre-existed his birth in Bethlehem, he pre-existed it as a divine person. Jesus was God and then emptied himself into creation. So Jesus, we have to understand, Jesus did not come into being at Bethlehem. Jesus was God before Bethlehem. Jesus' human nature came into being at Bethlehem, but Jesus, as a divine person, pre-existed Bethlehem, and that's what makes the incarnation so humble. It's because he existed outside of pain, outside of death, outside of discouragement, outside of weakness. He had no familiarity with things like that. And he said, I'll embrace them. The reason he's humble is because he pre-exists Bethlehem and he chose to enter into it. But he was God before Bethlehem and he was God in Bethlehem. And he still is God as he reigns today. The text says he was found in the form of God and then it says he took the form of man and it never says that one replaced the other or that the forms blended. Jesus now exists in two forms, the God form, the man form. The hypostatic union the God-man. The incarnation is an amazing act of condescension and humility, but Paul doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't just become a man to prove his humility and love for people. Look at what verse 8 says. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by, being, by, by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus was not only willing to become a creature, to take on our humanity, Jesus was willing to die. The immortal God, who knew nothing of death, died. He was willing to die. And notice, it tells us, the text says more specifically, he became obedient to the point of death. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's a reminder that in Jesus' humility, he didn't just 
become a man, and he didn't just die, but he was willing to take marching orders. From who? God the Father. Jesus says in John chapter 6, I've not come to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Jesus says in his prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, please take this cup from me, but ultimately it's not my will, but your will be done. Jesus says, I speak no things on my own authority, but I only speak that which has been given to me of my Father. Jesus willfully took on a mission his Father gave him, and Jesus performed it perfectly. He was obedient. He was submissive. The creator, all-powerful God of the universe is obeying orders. That's humility. And by the way, that's the reason for those amazing verses in 9 through 11. That's why Jesus has now inherited the throne that he has. Therefore, it's because of his obedience, fulfilling the Father's ministry, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's because of the humility of Christ. Because of him being obedient unto death. So Jesus was humble because he became a man. Jesus was humble because he was willing to die on behalf of sinners. The Bible says that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus became a man and died for unworthy people. That's two incredibly thick layers of humility. Of self-sacrificial love. But notice, he doesn't even stop there. Jesus didn't just become a man. He didn't just die. The verse also tells us in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus came to earth to die, but he didn't come just to gently pass away in his sleep. He didn't come to get into a car accident and die like that. Jesus came to die a particular way. He didn't just become obedient to the point of death. He came obedient to the point of death, even a crucifixion kind of death. And there's two elements that, of the crucifixion that we need to understand. And one is much more important than the other. And the first one is just a, ver a very physical, biological reality. And that is, is that Jesus' death was excruciating. Jesus went through unspeakable, inhumane torture. The God of the universe, remember what we studied in Hebrews chapter 1? Jesus is the one who upholds the universe. The breath, the heartbeat, the energy of all those people whipping him and crucifying him, Jesus was sustaining them in that moment. Jesus was giving them heartbeat and breath and life as they did that. Jesus was willing to die an excruciatingly, graphically horrendous death. He didn't just come to die. He, he came to be crucified at the hands of his creatures, to be humiliated, to be mocked, to be shamed by his people, his very creation. The crucifixion is no ordinary death. But there's a spiritual theological significance to the crucifixion that makes it far more horrible. Because you see, lots of people were crucified. It's not as if Jesus is the only person who's ever tasted that kind of pain. Lots of people have been crucified. But here's the point of what made his humility so incredible. Turn, keep your marker here, but turn to Galatians chapter 3.
turn to Galatians chapter 3. Let's begin in verse 11, although verse 13 is where I really want us to, to hone in on. Verse 11 says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. And there was an Old Testament law, the Deuterocanonical law, that told the Jews, really it implied to very rarely ever hang someone for a tree or do crucifixion. And the, the, the law says that even if you have to resort to that, you take their body down immediately because God established a religious taboo to being hung on a tree. The Jews understood being hung as, on the tree as being the ultimate representation of being cursed by God. To be hung on a tree is a representation of being a curse, being cursed by God. This was a particularly theologically shameful way of dying. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And the text takes that and applies it to Jesus' death by saying, in the manner in which he died, he showed to people, he proved to people that he was taking the curse of the law upon himself. He wasn't just randomly dying. He wasn't just, as, as many theologians who are non-Christians but claim to be Christians, they deny what we call penal substitution, and they try to explain that the cross was just, Jesus just died because he was such a loving person that the world can't handle that kind of love, so they put him to death. Jesus, the only reason Jesus died was just to show us how much he loves us. No, the Bible says that we who have broken the law are now under a divine curse. The law has cursed us. And Jesus, by dying on a cross, showed demonstrably and physically that I will take that curse upon myself. Jesus became a curse for us. For as the scripture says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus died a death that was theologically unacceptable. Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus took on a divine curse, if you will. So we see this threefold layer of humility that Christ would become a man, but he didn't stop there. He was willing to die for you, but he didn't stop there. He was willing to be crucified for you. That he would become a man, take on the form of a servant, humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see how much the selfless love and humility of Christ, you see how deep it goes? And now what's the point? Go back to verse five. Because of this gospel reality, because of Jesus' incarnation, because of his death, because of his atonement, Paul says on that basis, love others, treat others well. In other words, when somebody asks you, why are you a good person? Why do you try to help people? Why do you live sacrificially for other people? Our answer has to be because our God is good and he has been good to us. That's the answer to our morality. Because of who God is and what God has done for me, that's why I treat you the way I do. And any other answer that doesn't appeal to Jesus and his lordship is pagan. 
And the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, any other motivation for doing good deeds is a worthless behavior in the sight of God. He doesn't care for it. And so this takes us all the way back to our introduction. What do we do with Christmas cheer that's not grounded in the lordship and gospel of Christ? In other words, Christmas time, we're supposed to love each other. We're supposed to love our communities and serve our communities and bless our communities and be generous with our money. Why? Says who? What do we do with a Christless morality? Well, this is the best a secular Christmas can give you. Are you ready? I'm going to quote an old, or a a not-so-old ancient pagan hymn. You better watch out. You better not shout. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice, and he's going to find out who's been naughty or nice. You see, folks, Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when, you've, when you're awake. He knows whether you've been bad or good, so be good for, for goodness sake. Folks, what does that even mean? Can you, that's the secular answer. Oh, you, you've been such a great person this Christmas. You've, you've donated to the poor. You went and bought presents for everyone in your neighborhood. You've invited your neighbor. You've been such a, why are you so wonderful? Why are you so good? Well, because of good. Why are you so good? Well, just, just, for, just for goodness' sake. Folk, here's the problem. Darwin cannot practice Christmas spirit. There's no such thing as goodness in Darwin's worldview, our secular culture, which removes God from everything, once you take Christ out of the picture, you take morality out of the picture. There's no such thing as good. Can you buy good in Walmart? How much does it cost? Can you taste it? Can you touch it? No, you see, good is an abstract, invisible, objective quality. But what does secularism do? Secularism says all things are material. Everything started with a material ball that exploded, and here we are. And everything has evolved from some material order. So where do you get an objective, unchanging, immaterial concept like goodness from an only material, constantly evolving starting point? The only way goodness fits inside of Darwin's world is if it's tangible, touchable, and capable of evolving and changing. But that's not what goodness is. To be good for goodness sake doesn't make any sense unless you can actually tell me what goodness is, where it comes from, and why I'm obliged to follow it. And you can't do that apart from Christ. So they're just good arbitrarily. Why be good? What is good? How do I know giving a present to my neighbor is good and taking a present from my neighbor is not good? How do I know that? What if I define good differently? What if I think good is stealing? So around this Christmas time, I'm not going to buy anyone presents. I'm going to go to your home like the Grinch and steal your presents. And I think that's good. Who says I'm wrong? Secularism can't give you Christmas. Not Christmas cheer. And, and notice what we do with our children. We understand that their, their little minds probably aren't going to understand this grand concept of being good for goodness sake. Uh, that's why we as Christians, by the way, we're, we're good for Christ's sake. That's Paul's answer. And I don't mean that the blasphemous way. You know, people use that as a cuss word, like, oh, for Christ's sake. I don't mean it in the blasphemous way. I mean it in the very literal way. We are good for Christ's sake. That's what Paul says in verse 5. 
good for goodness sake, our kids, we don't even know what that means, so our kids aren't going to know what that means. So, so, so how do we make our kids good? Do we tell our children because God has an objective, unchanging character and because God sent his son into the world to humiliate himself and die on your behalf? Is, is that our answer? It should be. But without that, what's our answer? Well, Santa's coming, kids. And he knows when you're awake and he knows when you're sleeping. So if you want good presents, you better have Christmas cheer. Folks, that's not what Paul says in verse 3. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. If I'm loving people so that my present will be better, that's selfish ambition. That's not Christmas. The title of my sermon is, don't have a secular Christmas. And this is why kindness and love is so dangerous to the Christmas spirit because when we watch these secular Hallmark movies that just arbitrarily tell people love is good and goodness is good and you should be good this year, but we have no reason or standard for telling you that, we continue to promote this idea that goodness exists apart from the Lordship of Christ, that morality exists apart from the Lordship of Christ, and that we can know morality, we can know goodness without God revealing himself to us. That's the most dangerous understanding of Christmas, that we can just be good and we don't need Jesus to do it. That's pagan Christmas. That's secular Christmas. Paul's Christmas is be good because of what Christ Jesus has done for you. Because of who God is and what God has accomplished for you. You have received unmerited favor from a God who could have damned you. So that's why I love my neighbor. Because I have received the goodness of God. I have seen the goodness of God. I can ground and justify what goodness is. And I ground it and justify in the person and work of Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, just one side note before we close. I, they haven't come in yet, but I ordered these little tracks that when they get here, you'll be able to take. And on the front, they say something like, um, whyibotyourcoffee.com. And here's what they're for. You can take these tracks, and I'm, a, I'm the weirdo. I don't like coffee. I drink pop and energy drinks, and we have some very serious coffee drinkers in this church who are trying to bring me to repentance, but I'm being <laughs> stubborn. But I know we have a lot of coffee drinkers here. And sometimes you have the opportunity to spread Christmas cheer and buy someone's coffee, but you don't have the time or the opportunity to try to compel them to sit down and talk to you about the gospel. So here's what these little tracks do. You buy someone's coffee for them, and then you just give them this little track that says whyibotyourcoffee.com. And then they go to this website, and it tells them, why was I willing to, even, it's very small, we know it's not something to brag about. Why was I willing to sacrifice my money for you? And when they go to this website, guess what they're going to hear? Be good for goodness sake, that's why. No. Buying your coffee is the least I can do in light of what my God has done for me and what he offers to you. That's why we're good. That's why we follow law, obedience, not to merit salvation like kids meriting presents from Santa. Not just because the Ten Commandments are some, in, some floating tablets that evolved from the Big Bang that are out there that we're all obliged to follow, floating around separately, independently from Christ but because of who God is and what God has done on our behalf, that is what we do when we treat others well. And we do that not just in December. We make notice of it in December, but we do that. This is our constant mind, our constant disposition. 
that we are good, we are humble because Christ is good, because Christ is humble. That God's character and nature provide us with the standard of goodness and the model of goodness. So my call to you is this year, Christmas is coming up soon. Don't have a secular Christmas. Be good for Christ's sake. Be good for God's sake. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus.